Take your Bibles, if you will, turn to the first book, Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, we're continuing our journey with Abram, soon to become Abraham, and learning about the God of Abraham as much as we are about how we relate to this man. And we have come to chapter 15, one of the key passages, uh, not only in this narrative, but in the entire Bible, Genesis 15. Imagine with me for a moment that your, your phone rings and you say hello, and then there's that, that pause. You know, we all know that pause. So you say hello again, and then suddenly it clicks, and you hear there's a lot of people talking in the background, and someone says, hello, is this Mr. Sabaka? Uh, that's usually what they say to me. Um, and I say, yes, it is. And at that moment, uh, they probably tell me about something that I need or a charity that I should support. Um, and if you're like me, then you're already looking for a nice way to say thanks, but no thanks. I'd like to hang up and get back to what I'm doing. Uh, it could be because I'm busy doing something else. I'm eating dinner with my family. Or it could be that I just don't need what they're trying to sell me. But I think at its core, it's that I, I just don't trust them. I, I don't know who they are. Um, I, I don't know... I uh, have any proof that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. I don't, um, I don't know that they really represent the charity that they're saying they re- represent. And I don't know that I'll get what they say I'll get if I give them my credit card. I just, I don't trust them. I want some proof. I used to listen to Paul Simon when I was a kid, probably from the influence of my dad. And he's a great uh, poet of our day. But Paul Simon had a song called Proof. And he said in this song, he said, faith is an island in the setting sun. So faith is something off in the distance. It's just, it's kind of fading in our society. And then the next line was proof. Proof is the bottom line for everyone. Everyone wants proof of something. We want to be sure. Faith is something that just, it's fading in our society. We need proof, rock solid proof of everything. Now this morning, none of us would want to stand up and say, we doubt God. It's not something that we would want to admit here in church, probably. We wouldn't want to admit that there are moments when we wonder whether or not we can completely trust God, or there are moments when we trust him, but we just we just wonder what in the world he is doing. What is what is he up to with in our lives? And there's moments where we just we want a little proof that he's that he's active, that he's that he's real, that he's involved in our lives. Some people, maybe you came here today and, and you're just a classic skeptic. You don't either believe in God at all or you're just wondering about Christianity in general and you want some proof. Or maybe you are a follower of Christ, but there are times and maybe this is a time where you're just wondering about something specific in your life. What is God doing? Can I can I really trust him in this situation? If not now, there are times where we just we have shadows of doubt. We just don't know what to do. We trust God. We just wish that we knew what he was thinking at times. Or we wish we knew how he was going to accomplish something. I mean, if we're Christians, we've given over our entire lives to him, right? We just kind of wonder sometimes, what's he going to do with the lives once we give them to him? I think if anyone could relate to those kind of feelings, it would be Abram. Abram, this man who came up out of Ur and left everything that he knew, everything that was familiar to him, and wandered around trying to understand where God was leading him. And here in Genesis 15, I don't know if I would go as far as to say that Abram is doubting God. I think I would say that Abram, who is this wanderer, is maybe wondering. He's wondering what God is up to. 
he's wondering about when something is finally going to get started. I think Abram feels like he's gone to the movie theater and he just keeps seeing previews over and over and over again. And he's saying, when is the main attraction going to come, God? I'm sitting here watching all these previews about what is going to happen, but when is it actually going to happen? Genesis 15 is, is a text that has so many different layers to it. It's, there's, there's so much in this. It's a, a beautiful description of this relationship between Abram and God, but it's also this foundational text establishing God's covenant between Abram and God that will be fulfilled in Christ. It's also the first text in the Bible that links justification, being made right before God, with faith. It's the first time in the Bible that we see that we are saved by faith. So this is a key passage, but I think if you looked at all the layers, the layer that's, that's right on the top, the one that, that is being most clearly communicated, is in this conversation between Abram and God, there is a question about the trustworthiness of God and his promises. It's a conversation here. It happens in two parts. It happens in verses 1 through 5, and then it happens in verses 7 through 21. And in both, God comes, he speaks to Abram, Abram responds with a question, and then God answers Abram's question, Abram's question in both sections. And after these two exchanges, Abram's questions and his doubts are, are answered, and we learn this key truth. I think this is the key truth. God is worthy of our trust. That's very simple, but I think that's what God is, is teaching Abram and what he's teaching us. God is worthy of our trust. So for those of us here who are like Abram, we sometimes just wonder what God is up to. We begin to wander into the land of doubt this morning. I want us to walk away saying, God is worthy of my complete trust. And I think God is saying to us, I am worthy of your complete trust. So let's read Genesis 15 together. And as we read it, I want you to note those two sections. Verses 1 through 5 is the first conversation. Verses 7 through 21 is the second conversation. And verse 6, I think, is kind of the, the fulcrum. It's the, it's the key central verse that tells us how Abram responds. Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess but he said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain 
that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot, and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Look back with me at the beginning of this passage. We'll look at this first conversation, verses 1 through 5. It begins, the passage begins, it says, after these things. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that last week God had given Abram victory. These kings from the north came down into the land of Canaan, and they took his brother Lot with him. And Abram went and conquered these, these four great kings from the north and got, uh, got his, brother, his nephew Lot back. And we remember that he had a choice when the two kings came out, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem, Melchizedek, came out. And Abram had this opportunity to kind of snatch and grab for the land if he wanted to, but he chose to wait, he chose to have faith and trust that God would give it to him in his own good time. And so it was a victory here for faith. But I think it could be that that, that whole scene shook Abram a little bit. He's in his 80s, remember, and I'm not sure that he's ready to mount some sort of military campaign in the midst of Canaan to take the land. He may have been sitting in Hebron, and I, I, just, I just wonder if he's thinking, what are these kings going to do to me now? Are they going to show up at my tent door someday here? Maybe he woke up in the middle of the night at times and thought he heard horses outside his door, or armies coming at him. There, there's fear creeping into Abram's heart, and so one evening, as he's sleeping, I would assume, Abram didn't hear horses in the night, but he heard the voice of God. God comes to him in a vision. God comes to him and he says two things. And the first thing he says is he says, Abram, don't be afraid. He says, Abram, fear not. It's a theme that's repeated all throughout Scripture. God is always telling his people, fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And why is Abram not to be afraid? He says, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Don't be afraid, Abram, because I am with you. That's why we opened with Psalm 46. Doesn't this remind you of what we'd studied there? It says in the beginning of Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. If the whole earth falls apart, we won't be afraid. Why? Because God is my refuge and strength. God is with me. God is, God is near to me. And God says to Abram, Abram, don't be afraid. I am your shield. I am with you. Remember that truth. The presence of our all-powerful and loving God causes fear and anxiety to fly out the window. God calms Abram's fears. That's the first thing he says. But then God tells him, he says, your reward shall be very great. It's this, this promise of reward. And for Abram, it doesn't conjure up images of, of wealth and, and prosperity. It conjures up images of, of a son of an heir. This is what he knows he needs. Abram understood that this blessing was a son. He knew that the promises of God were, were built upon the fact that he had to have an heir. Someone had to follow 
Abram to receive everything that God was going to give him? How could, how could he receive this reward? How could all nations be blessed if he didn't have a son? And so Abram is very candid with God here, and he says, How, God? You keep telling me that my reward is going to be very great, but I don't have a son. We see his response twice. Verse 2 and verse 3 are both Abram's response. They're different, but the contents are the same. He says the same thing in both. He says, God, I don't have a child. I'm childless. I have no offspring. And then he offers God a solution. The only person in my house that can take over is Eliezer of Damascus, this foreign-born servant. He's the one that's going to take over if you don't give me a son. This was common. It's a common solution. Couples that were childless would take a servant from their house and adopt them, and they would then become the heir to all their property. Lot would have been the logical choice, right? You would think that Lot would take over for Abram, but Lot has has shown uh, that his his absence in the land shows that that, that ship has kind of sailed. Lot is, is out of the picture at this point. Eleazar wasn't Abram's favorite solution, but it was, it was the only solution that he could wrap his mind around. Remember, he and Sarai are in their 80s, and so for him, the thought of having a son, that ship has also sailed. In fact, it's out of the harbor. It's, it's way off somewhere else in lands unknown, at least in his mind. So what do you do with Abram's response here? Is this, is this a lack of faith? Is he saying to God, I don't think you can do it, Lord? Or is he just confused? Or maybe he's just impatient. I think, I think he, he believes, but as the years continue to slip by with, with each turn of the calendar page, he just kind of says, how, God? And when, God? When, when is this finally going to happen? And so when God appears to him in this vision and says, again, he says, Abram, your reward, is, your reward is going to be very great. Abram just says, God, I know you keep saying that, but how? Give me, I need to know how this is going to happen. I think we're all prone to this. We're all prone to impatience. And impatience often leads to, to doubt. We wait and we wait and we wait. And in the waiting, we start wondering. And the wondering can slowly form into doubt. And we just say, God, what in the world are you doing? It's like when you're cruising down the interstate, right? And all of a sudden, traffic stops dead. And you can't see anything in front of you. And you're just creeping along. And you have no idea what the problem is up front, and, and but you're, you just know you're going slow and you're not getting where you want to be. So you do that thing where you swerve out into the berm and stick your head out the window and you're trying, what is going on? What's the holdup? I, I want to move and you just start wondering if your car is ever going to go over five miles per hour again. And in life, sometimes we just wonder, when is this trial going to pass? When is God going to answer this prayer? When is life going to slow down? That's my question sometimes. Uh, when, when is all of this going to make sense, God? I just don't understand what you're doing. You know, God doesn't rebuke Abram, does he? He doesn't yell at Abram for asking this question. God knows that we are weak. And I think he, he sees honest questions. This is an honest question from a heart that believes God, that honors God, it just doesn't know. God's not rebuking this question. He's honoring it as a question that's asked in faith. He's asking God because he knows God's the only one that can answer this. He says, God, I don't understand what you're doing. Will you please just give me a little bit more clarity? And in the dialogue, God responds very honestly to Abram. He doesn't give a detailed plan, but he affirms what he has said in the past. 
assures Abram, Abram, I haven't forgotten about you. The traffic is going to clear, just as I said it would. You will have a son. He rejects Abram's solution. He says, Eliezer, he doesn't even say Eliezer's name. He says, this man, this man will not be your heir. You will have a son. Look how he says it in um, in verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your son. Your very own son shall be your He's very clear. Your ver- It's going to be your very own son. He will be your offspring, Abram. He is going to fulfill the promise. And then watch in verse 5. I love verse 5. He brought him outside. I just imagine God leading Abram outside, you know, maybe holding him by his shoulder. And he takes him outside and he says, Abram, I want you to look at the stars. And now I almost see God smiling, if you would, because he knows he's, he's not really asking Abram to do this. He says, Abram, count all the stars. And if you can. I think that's the way he says it, right? He says, number the stars if you are able to number them. You can't do it, Abram. And I think Abram smiles. Abram doesn't start counting. He, he understands what God is saying. He says, the, the stars are as numberless as the dust of the ground, which is the other illustration that, that God has used in the past. And God says, this is what your offspring is going to be like. It's going to be numberless. Has God given Abram any new information? I, I, he hasn't. He just says, Abram, I, I give you my word. God comes very kindly to Abram. And in his doubt and in his confusion, he says, I just want to affirm to you again, I understand how you feel. I've heard your solution about Eliezer, and I reject it. That's not how it's going to happen. You are going to have a son. He will be your heir. The promise is going to be great. It's going to be beyond anything you can imagine. It's going to be like the stars in the sky, Abram. This is way bigger than you, and I will do it. Trust me, Abram. Take me at my word. I think that's the, the message that God says. He speaks to us in our doubts, and he says, trust me. And brothers and sisters, this is the truth, I think, that helps us to understand the trustworthiness of God. It's that God's word is sure. God's word is sure. We may be impatient. We may have no idea what in the world God is doing. We may not understand how he's going to accomplish his will for us. But his word is sure. We can ask questions and we can trust that when he responds, we can trust his word. Some people feel jealous of Abram. They say, I wish God would come and talk to me like that. I wish he'd appear to me in a vision. But remember how few and far between these things are. I mean, it's years before God comes and talks to Abram each time. And as we read, it's probably four or five times that God appears to Abram and speaks to him. And as Peter says to us, he says, we have the prophetic word made more sure in Scripture. And so we hold in our laps the very words of God and God's word to Abram is just as sure as his word to us is here in Scripture. God's word is sure, and when we read it, we can say, this will happen. God said it, it will happen. And I think in moments of doubt, this is where we go. We, we ask God, we say, God, I don't understand, and then we read, and God will confirm. And God will say, my word is sure. I will do what I said I will do. And comfort and peace floods into our heart. God is worthy of our trust. God is worthy of our trust because his word is sure. Let's look at the second conversation in verses 7 through 21. Abram, God comes to Abram a second time. And, and in verse 1, he initially pronounces a blessing. In verse 1, we saw that. And the same thing happens in verse 7. He comes to Abram. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. In the first one, it was about, it was about the offspring. And in this one, it's about the land. Abram, I'm going to give you the land. 
He says, I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. I didn't bring you out so that I could abandon you. I brought you out to give you this land. And then in verses 2 and 3, Abram respond, in verses 2 and 3, he responded with a question. Then in verse 8, Abram asks another question. Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He, he wants some assurance. He, he wants God to say, this is, uh, wants, he, the, the question isn't so much about how, it's just how do I know, Lord? How do I know that this is going to happen? I think we're born maybe a little bit skeptical. From an early age, we learn that just because someone says they're going to do something doesn't mean that they're going to do something. And so as a kid, I don't know if everyone else had this experience, but as a kid, people would say, I will do it. I, I cross my heart and hope to die. You know, hold your hand up. You remember that? So the, the, you're communicating, I cross my heart, I hope to die. If I don't do this, I hope that I die. That's how sure I am that I'm going to do it. Now, that's what, what I always did as a kid. I also heard about things called pinky swears. Have you heard of these? And I guess that's that's pretty firm. You know, if you are going to pinky swear, that's like that's like uh, on par with the triple dog dare, but that's a whole other story. The, the point is, though, that, that we're kind of born, we're born a little skeptical. When someone tells us they're going to do something, we say, well, how do I know that you're going to do that? So we have people sign documents. We make people make down payments because we want to be sure, and, and we don't buy things over the phone. We're just not sure that we can trust people. So can we trust God? Well, that's kind of what's going on here. Can, can we take God at his word? Can we trust him? And again, I don't think Abram is necessarily doubting God. He's just saying, God, I, I, want, I want a little bit of proof. I just want a little bit of confirmation. It's like he's asking God for a handshake maybe. You know, we just... Just assure me that, th that this is really going to happen. I just want to know that it's going to happen. He's just wondering. And again, God is, is so kind to Abram. We're warned not to test God, not to say, God, you got to do this. But I think God is confined. He will, is kind and he will confirm his word when we need him to. And so Abram says, Lord, how, how will I know? And God says, well, I want you to get me some animals. Now, if God said that to us, if we said, how do we know, Lord? And he said, well, here's what I want you to do, Andy. I want you to get a, a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. I know there's pigeons on this roof over here, but I don't know where to find any of that other stuff. So if God spoke that to me, I wouldn't know what to do. But Abram obviously knows exactly what to do. He has these things in his, in his herds that God has given him. He, he takes them. And he, he takes each of the animals, the, the three animals, and then there's the two birds. He takes the three that are not birds, and he cuts them in half. You can envision what that would look like. That's a bloody thing, isn't it? Cuts them in half and separates them side by side. Okay, And so he takes the one, the, the heifer, and then the next, and he does the same thing. And the next of so these three, and then at the end, he's got the two birds that are placed in kind of this, this aisle way, if you will. And he lays them out on the ground. And then the, the text tells us that darkness comes over Abram, and, and there's these, these birds of prey, I would assume vultures or something like that. Vultures, I mean, those are big birds. And so there's darkness, and there's these huge birds, and Abram is out there shooing away the, the birds from these carcasses that are laying on the ground. It's a strange picture. It's a dark picture. I mean, there, there's darkness, and there, is, there, there are these birds of prey. It's, it's kind of scary. And in the midst of that, after a while, all of a sudden, God speaks into the silence and into the darkness. And he doesn't hold anything back from Abram. He tells him exactly 
what is going to happen. He, he gives the play-by-play for the next 400 years. He says, first of all, though, no for certain. He says, Abram, this is sure. It is going to happen. No for certain. And he says, first of all, that, that your offspring, they're going to be sojourners. They're going to wander just like you. And then they're going to end up in a land that's not their own. And they're going to be slaves. And that's going to be 400 years that they're going to be slaves. And then I will bring them out. And I will plunder the nation. I will, I will, I will bless them with possessions as they come out. And Abram knew what that meant. He'd had, that had happened to him, remember, in chapter 12. When they came out of Egypt, he took all the goods with him. And then he says that, um, that they will come into the land, but they wouldn't do it yet because the, the iniquity, the sin of the Amorites was not yet fulfilled. So God's got a, a plan. He knows what he's doing. And he, then he tells Abram that his days will be long. He will, he will live long. But, but God has this plan, and he, and he lets Abram know exactly what's going to happen. He says, Abram, I'm giving you the land, but it's going to take 400 years because I have to take your people, and they have to be in slavery. And I have to let the Amorites continue to sin so that their sin will build up so they have opportunity to repent, but they won't repent. And then after 400 years, I'm going to bring you out. He knows he has to give his people the law. He has to have them wander through the desert. And then he's going to lead Israel into the land as the instrument, as like a sword, if you will, to judge the Amorites for their sin. So they will come. So he says, it's going to happen, Abram. It's just going to take a long time. You're like if someone said, I'm going to give you a house. I'm going to give it to your family. They can have it in 400 years. You're not going to see it, but your descendants, they will reap the blessings of it. God will fulfill his promises. God fulfills his promises, but that doesn't mean that he keeps us from, from pain. That doesn't mean that he keeps us from, from suffering. I mean, slavery is not something that Abram wants for his offspring, is it? But it's going to happen. Remember we saw that in, in Psalm 46, that God is our refuge and strength. Not that he guards us from everything bad, but that he keeps us within it sometimes. And God says, I will be with your people. I will keep them in the midst of everything that's going on. I think sometimes that our doubts... They stem from us. We just don't. We don't see the big picture. We just see what's right in front of us. We live in an age that's about instant gratification, right? We want the fulfillment of things now. We want God to give us what He says He's going to give us right now. I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait four minutes, let alone four hundred years. We expect everything in an instant, but maybe it's it's that God's goodness is just it's going to take some time. And of course, for us as Christians, the hope of our life is not fulfilled now. The hope of us, we are like Abram, aren't we? Remember what Hebrews says about Abram? He was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. That's a city that Abram wouldn't see until after he died. I think sometimes we expect heaven on earth. But heaven is in heaven. (laughs) And this is earth. And we may taste heaven now, but it's not until we taste death that we fully can savor the beauties of what heaven is. So God says we have to wait at times. God doesn't hide anything from Abram. He tells him exactly what's going to happen, but he also doesn't leave any room for Abram to doubt. There there are these animals. You remember, we've we've seen the animals. They're laying on the ground here. And and the darkness has come, and Abram's shooing away all these, these birds of prey. And they're, they're laying there. They're prepared for a covenant ceremony. It's as if there's a contract laying on the table and people, someone is, is, we're waiting for the two people 
to sign it. And typically, in this kind of a covenant relationship, what would happen is that, that two people that were making a covenant would come together, and they would grasp hands, and they would walk down that gauntlet. They would walk through the middle of those animals. And in doing so, they would say, if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain, if I fail in this way, then what, what has happened to these animals? May that happen to me. So it's kind of like, cross my heart, hope to die, except a lot more bloody and a lot more meaningful. And so this is how people would make covenants. And so what's unique about this, though, is that in that darkness, Abram is probably waiting. that He's going to walk through this. He knows what he's supposed to do. But in the darkness, all of a sudden, this, this smoking oven and this, this flaming torch show up. In the midst of the darkness, light appears. And Abram never walks through it, but instead the light, the, the fire, goes through these sacrifices as a representation of God. And God says, I'm taking this covenant upon myself. Abram, it has absolutely nothing to do with you or your faithfulness. It has to do with me. I am going to do this. I am swearing by myself that I will fulfill this covenant. I will give you the land and I will do it by my power. I promise. I'm giving you a covenant. I'm signing on the line and I don't need you to co-sign with me. I will do it. God is worthy of our trust then, not simply because his word is true, but because his promises are rooted in his unchanging character. They're rooted in, in who he is. Let me give you a quick summary, and we're almost done, but in Hebrews chapter 6, in Hebrews chapter 6, the author of Hebrews sums this up beautifully. Hebrews chapter 6, and in verse 13, he says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. I want the, the greatest thing to swear by, God says. I want to show you how firm my, my promise is, so I'm going to swear by the greatest thing I possibly can. I'm going to swear by myself. He says, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Then listen to this. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, when God wanted to show that he would not change his mind, that he would do what he said he was going to do, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. He swears by two things. He swears by his word. He will not lie. And he swears by himself because he will not change. And he says, there's nothing greater than I can swear by. I'm swearing by them both that I will do what I said I will do. And what is the result? We can have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. God swears by himself, and he swears by his word, and he says, you can trust me. There's nothing greater than I can swear by. What else am I going to swear by that's greater than that? I will do it. I've said I will do it, and I will. God is worthy of our trust. His, his word is sure. He's sworn by himself. And so in response to these things, what does Abram do? It's verse 6. It's this key verse in this passage, and even in all of the Bible. Abram believed the Lord. He counted it to him as righteousness. God believes what, or Abram believes what God says, 
and God counts righteousness to Abram. God doesn't ask Abram to do anything except believe. And when Abram believes, God says, I will do what I said I will do. I will give you goodness and blessing and righteousness. I think that that verse, verse 6, is, is our response. What are we going to do? We're faced with this question. Are we going to trust God? And we all want proof. We all want to know why should we trust Him. And God doesn't say, like I sometimes say to my kid, because I said so. Because I'm God, and if I say you should trust me, you should trust me. God is so kind. Instead, he gives us glimpses of, of his trustworthiness, like Genesis 15. He says, I will swear by myself. I will swear by my name. I will swear by my word. And then he shows us the most beautiful picture in the gospel. Jesus comes, and he declares by his word. He says that he has come in love, that he loves us. And then he cuts his own covenant with his own blood he becomes the sacrifice that is split he becomes the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world he doesn't ask us to die for our sins he says i will do it i swear by myself and though he lived a sin sinless life he was condemned to die as a criminal and when he hung on the cross all the sins that we have committed were credited to him they were placed on him he pays the price. You want proof? Romans 5 says that God shows, God demonstrates, God proves his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus has walked that gauntlet for us. Jesus has been torn for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so like Abram, our response is to respond to these confirmed promises of God, to say, God, you are worthy of my complete trust. How could I doubt? He's proven himself thoroughly over and over and over. And if we will do that, he says he will credit us with righteousness. We see in the New Testament what that means. That not only does Jesus, as the Lamb of God, take the punishment for all of our sins, but then because of his perfect life, he gives us his righteousness. So now God has nothing against us. Our sins have been paid for and we are completely righteous before him. We have done what we need to do and he sees us in us the righteousness of Christ. Because of anything that we've done? No, but just like Abram, by faith. We believe. We believe what God has done. So if we can trust God with our whole lives, and not simply with our lives here on earth, but if we trust God with our eternal souls, and we can trust him for everything else. If, as Paul Simon says, proof is the bottom line for everyone, I wouldn't say that Jesus doesn't have, I would say Jesus doesn't have to prove his love, but he does. And Jesus has proven his love so clearly to us on the cross. It's, it's as plain as day, his love and his grace. But we don't stop there and say there's the proof. But the proof then leads us to what he says is an island in the setting sun. The proof leads us to faith. It's not blind faith, but it's rooted in who God is. And there's nowhere else that we should put our faith and our trust. And if we do, that the miracle of salvation happens and God credits us with righteousness.